Well, these days, it seems as though everything is political, doesn't it? Popular music and TV shows increasingly advocate for their political view or the political view of their creators. Businesses, once created to merely provide a product to consumers, are now sort of falling all over themselves to posture or to signal what side they're on, or at least what side they like to be thought about being on. Even objects that would seem to have sort of no political relevance whatsoever, like cloth masks, have become political footballs in the last couple of years. Once one side chooses to politicize an issue, then all the other sides sort of have to have no choice, but they have to play the game on the issue. Well, everything seems to be political these days. And anything that isn't, well, it will soon be enough. Well, in this sense, the fact that everything is political, I think, is an unhelpful development in the life of our country. It seems that more and more people are sort of set over against one another more and more of the time on more and more issues, and the volume increases more and more. But I think there is another sense in which everything truly is political. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, for every single one of us in this room, everything we do is political because everything that we do either recognizes or rejects the Creator God's rightful rule and say over our lives. Politics is about the right ordering of a society, of a people, and the ultimate political question is whether or not you honor and revere the God of heaven, or if you rebel against him. God assesses and measures our lives in terms of how we relate to his son, the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at the Father's right hand and reigns over all things. And the risen Jesus claims not just your Sunday mornings, he claims not just your regular office hours. The risen Jesus claims your entire person. And so the truth is that everything is political because there is no neutrality in relation to Jesus. So whether you recognize it or not, your whole life is in this sense political because everything that you do bears witness to your ultimate loyalty, your ultimate authority, your ultimate allegiance. Everything that you do shows who you recognize 
as supreme. Is it Jesus of Nazareth? Or is it something else? Is it someone else? Well, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is our passage this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can find that on page 485 of the Pew Bible tucked in front of the rack there in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible with you at home, we would invite you to take that Bible with you, consider it as a gift from us to you. There's really nothing better for you to do than to open God's Word, to read it, and to sit under it. So we would love for you to have that copy with you. Psalm 72 is where we'll be this morning. We're going to read all of the psalm together now. Beginning in verse 1 of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May you be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May you have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. And blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. And amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Well, the main idea that I want us to take from this psalm is this. If you're taking notes this morning, the main idea is that the reign of God's king is ever-righteous, ever-reaching, and everlasting. The reign of God's king is ever-righteous, ever-reaching, and 
everlasting. And I'm going to sort of break that down into four sections or four realities that would support that idea that we draw out of this passage. So reality number one, the righteousness of God's reign. The righteousness of the king's reign. Well, King Solomon, as we read, is the author of the psalm. He was the son of King David. King Solomon ruled over united Israel in the 10th century BC. And this entire psalm is written by him as a prayer. And it's a prayer for the king of Israel. Well, what exactly is Solomon praying for? And really, on what basis, as we just read, does he make such massive requests? Well, in one sense, Solomon could be praying for himself and and really any of David's heirs to his throne. And the people of the day could have even experienced partial answers to these prayers that were uttered during their own lifetimes. And yet, as we just read, you may be asking yourself, what kind of king reigns forever? What kind of king can bring unhindered, universal prosperity across the globe? Is this just sort of some exaggerated poetry? Well, the key to that answer is a promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we're told about a king that will come from David's line who will establish an everlasting throne, who will indeed rule righteously forever over all peoples of the earth. Well, who is this king that will reign forever? Spoiler alert. It's Jesus. Jesus is the son of David. He's the Messiah king who will reign from sea to sea and over every nation. Now the announcement of an all-powerful ruler may not sound like good news to many of us. I mean, just imagine how chilling it would sort of be if, as an American citizen, you hear of a president who's elected, takes office, and he just sort of says his very first words, well, you remember those three branches of government that we had? Those don't exist anymore. I'm the one in charge. That wouldn't really strike any of us as good news, I don't think. Now, it's very doubtful that a president would ever be able to pull that off, but that's a horrifying thought simply because humans are sinful. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, at least when wielded by sinful humanity. But look at this psalm. Look at the way that this king uses his authority. Verse 2 May he judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. Now those words, righteousness and justice, they're, they're sort of common Bible words, but especially common in the Old Testament. 
and especially important for us in understanding this psalm. All the way back in Genesis chapter 18, they show up whenever God is speaking about why he saved Abraham out of pagan idolatry. God says this, he says, I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So the people of Israel who God set apart for himself were to be marked by righteousness and by justice. Jeremiah the prophet is going to say that what it means to know the Lord is to do righteousness and justice. And even more so, the king who would rule over God's people was charged to ensure that righteousness and justice would abound in the land. Well, these two words are covenantal in nature. That means that they were really only possible to uphold based upon a right relationship with the living God. Because God himself is the very definition of what is just and only does what is right, because he is righteous altogether, we only know what true righteousness and justice is from his word and from a true relationship with him. Well, these two words sort of come from the same root. And so there's some overlap in meaning, but When we're using this word justice today, there can be a little bit of confusion because oftentimes the way that we think about it as Americans is we think about justice in, in terms of rights and freedoms under our Constitution. But in the Bible, justice actually has more to do with right order within society. That order in Israel was held together as a community by the glue of generosity, caring for the poor, upholding the cause of those who had been wronged, not showing partiality to the poor or to the great. Well, this was the responsibility of citizens, but it was especially the responsibility of rulers and judges, the king in particular in the psalm. So that's justice. What about righteousness? Well, righteousness similarly spoke to one's relationship and being right with God, but out of that, also right relationship with others. So a father fulfilling his relational duties to his son, being faithful to his wife, somebody being generous with their time in their community. Righteousness, just like justice, was demonstrated then within the embeddedness of relationships and within one's own community. Sort of of put it simply, righteousness had more to do with relationships being consistent with the law of God. Justice had more to do with court rulings being consistent with the law of God. And that's exactly what we see fleshed out in this prayer right here. Verse 4, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people. 
May he give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. You know, one of the reasons that many of us are so suspicious of authority is because it's easily abused. And when authority is abused, it's bent on using power for its own personal gain. And it does so at the expense of others. Just do a quick Google search of corrupt politics and you'll see exactly what I mean. But this isn't just in the world of government out there. It regrettably also happens in religious institutions. Even those that bear the name of Jesus. Whether that be the abuse and scandals and cover-up, even within our own denomination. Or the misuse and abuse of authority of some very high-profile churches. And so certainly, I think Christians ought to take a vested interest in calling out and confronting ungodly use of authority. And that should be something that should be confronted and corrected in our day. And simultaneously, though, I think Christians ought to confront and correct the rejection of good and godly authority. The suspicion of a good gift that God has given and ought to be wielded rightly and in the fear of Him. But often gets met with doubts, suspicion, disobedience, even rebellion. Well, what about you? How do you think about authority? Are you immediately suspicious of anyone who has it? Do you see that it is actually a good gift that God has given for the ordering of society? Or do you just sort of see it as a necessary evil? Well, then how do you use the authority that God has given you? Do you use your position to privilege only yourself? To serve merely your own desires, even at the detriment of others? Well, here is a picture to serve as something of a test case for us on what godly authority looks like. Look at how the king's authority is used for the benefit of his people. He defends those who need to be defended. He delivers those who need to be delivered. He shows compassion on the weak and needy. And he has great affection for their well-being. Ungodly authority sacrifices others to serve oneself. But Jesus sacrificed himself to serve others. Ungodly authority robs from others just so that way it can enrich itself. But Christ came and poured his riches out 
so that we in him might be rich. Ungodly authority takes and takes and takes and it never gives. But Jesus gave himself so that we would have him and all things in him forever. Well, only Jesus deserves your worship and your absolute obedience because only Jesus rules with perfect righteousness. The reign of the Lord is righteous altogether. But let's consider now, secondly, the results of the king's reign. The results of his reign. Reality number two. Verse 3, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Verse 6, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. Verse 7, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Verse 16, may there be abundance of grain in the land and On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Well, the results of this king's righteous rule is a prosperous people. Both spiritually as well as physically. This was a reality that was promised to the nation of Israel as they would live under a godly king. And yet, I think that this promise is still true for Christians today as we live under the reign of Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, the physical prosperity that's promised to us in the Lord's kingdom is not fulfilled this side of heaven, okay? It's not fulfilled this side of heaven. However, we are seeing spiritual wholeness that is being restored through the death of Jesus Christ now. But we're not going to see that total cosmic restoration spiritually and physically. That's still ahead of us. That's still on the other side of death. That's still in future glory. It won't be reached until the return of Christ when he will reign in the new heaven and the new earth. But that will be a glorious day, y'all. We we have the hope of heaven where there's going to be no more tears or cancer. No more criminals or heartbreak or homelessness. No more danger or disasters. No more death and dying. Y'all, it will be rich prosperity under the reign of Jesus where we will dine at his table with him forever and with one another. Amen. But you know, I wonder how much of our worrying about our future, about our finances, about our health, about our happiness, comes out of forgetting that God has already given us all things in Christ. I'm not saying that you're ever going to be a millionaire this side of heaven. But what I am saying 
is that all of the new creation is entirely yours in the new heaven and the new earth. You are already a co-heir with Christ if you are in Him. That means all things are yours in Him. In the new heaven and the new earth, what Christ has earned is now yours in future glory. Christ, who is your life, we are waiting for Him to appear. And y'all, if God has already given the ultimate gift of Christ and His life to you, He's not going to withhold the wrapping paper, is He? It's kind of like if you had a rich relative who told you that when they die in five to ten years, they're going to give you ten billion dollars in their bank account. And you were probably overjoyed by that news when you heard it. But what would happen if during those last five to ten years of that relative's life, you started to worry? You started to get angsty. Well, what if they go back on their word? What if somebody else was able to get the inheritance? What if what, if what they're saying isn't really true? Well, you would probably start to live those last five to ten years waiting on a $10 billion inheritance in a really restless, really anxious, really tragic state. Angst and worry and doubt and trouble, wondering if things were actually going to pan out. Well, y'all, God has already promised the inheritance. He's already given us the down payment by His Spirit. He's already sealed the deal with the blood of His Son. We're just waiting for the fulfillment of all of it. It will be a glorious day when we see the vastness, the richness, the perfection that the reign of the Lord brings. But not only will it be peace and prosperity, both spiritually and physically, but y'all, it will be love abounding. The full result of the reign of Jesus, yes, peace, yes, prosperity, but love everlasting. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Heaven is a World of Love, gives this meditation on the new heavens and the new earth. Love resides and reigns in every heart there. The heart of God is the original seat. Love is in God as light is in the sun, which does not shine by a reflected light, but by His very own light as the fountain of light. 
And love flows out from God in innumerable streams towards all the inhabitants of heaven. The love of God flows out towards Christ, the head and king, and through him to all his members, in whom they were beloved before the foundation of the world, and in whom his love was expressed by his death and his sufferings. And in their conversion and the great things that God had done for them in this world, but now is fully manifested for them in heaven. The reign of Jesus will be established in righteousness, but its result will be love everlasting. Thirdly, let's consider the reach of his reign. The reign of Jesus is very simply over all things and for eternity. Over all things and for eternity. Only Jesus reigns over all things. Period. Full stop. Jesus has got it, y'all. Verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. The picture that's envisioned here is not just the kings sort of nearer and around Israel bowing the knee, but all kings everywhere, all peoples everywhere turning and bowing the knee to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. All authorities will one day answer to the authority of Jesus Christ. And there's sort of just two basic forms that this submission will look like. It will either be, number one, a humble trust in obedience now. Giving glory to Christ bowing to his authority, trusting in his word, believing his promise, giving allegiance to him. Or number two, it will be an unwilling submission to him. Being unwillingly humbled by his just judgment on the last day. When he comes not to show mercy, not to extend grace, but to execute judgment under all those who held up the high hand and said, I do not want your reign. All earthly authorities will either do their duties for Christ or they will receive their doom from him. They will either be his willing workers or his conquered captives. And y'all, don't be deceived. Earthly authority can often have the appearance of finality to it. You know, sort of, we tend to think that every buck stops somewhere, every chain of command has its final link. But that appearance of finality here on this earth, it can tempt us to false conclusions. It can tempt us to think that human authority is the highest authority. It can tempt us to think that human power is the highest of power. But right now, 
while every single one of us in this room draws breath, there is a higher authority. And Christ sits on His throne and holds an office far higher than that of any earthly leader. And one day, He will strip away all the authority that He lent out, all the borrowed authority that was from Him, and those who resisted His rule or who had been unfaithful with the authority that He gave Him, He will bring it back. Now, in one sense, that was every single one of us, y'all. Every single one of us, all of us, at one time or another, had resisted Christ's authority. We raged against the Lord's anointed one. We rebelled against the one true king. As our creator, God himself is our king. He has the right to command anything of us. God has given us everything. And we owe him everything. But all of us have rebelled against God. We've rejected God's authority over us. We deserve His punishment. But God is both just and merciful. And in mercy, He sent His eternal Son into the world, the King of kings who we've been speaking of, the King from the line of David, who this very psalm is about. He lived for us. He died for His people. He rose again for His people. He now lives and is reigning and is interceding for His people. He sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross in order that the sentence of death might pass over us and be put on Him. And anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus, your sins can be taken away forgiven, slate, wiped clean, perfect righteousness put on you by faith and faith alone. That's how you become part of God's kingdom. And y'all, when Jesus rose from the dead, when he ascended into heaven, that's when the prayers of this psalm started coming true, started being entirely fulfilled. Jesus occupied that throne, and nobody's taken him off, y'all. He's there to stay. They began to come true in Jesus' reign over all things. So Christ's reign of justice really is transforming his people through the Spirit now. And yet we wait for that full day when it will come to final glad fruition. Verse 17, may people be blessed in him. May all nations call him blessed. Jesus is the one the whole Bible is pointing to. He came so that all people could be blessed in Him. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation going to worship and to bow down at His throne because He purchased a people and made them a kingdom of priests out of nations by 
his blood. Pentecost, Sunday, 1862. Civil war was ripping through America, but an event just as momentous unfolded half of a world away. But no news headlines would capture it. Some 5,000 men and women, many of them former cannibals, gathered on a South Pacific island to sing praise to the one true and living God. George Tapu, the first Christian king of Tonga, assembled his citizens as part of a ceremony commemorating a new code of laws. And there, with the king, surrounded by some 5,000 voices, they lifted their voices and sang, Jesus shall reign. Where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore his, till moons shall wax and wane no more. The lines of that hymn were written by Isaac Watts over a hundred years prior. And Isaac Watts wrote that hymn because of this psalm, Psalm 72. The heart of God captured in this psalm captivated Solomon and also captivated Isaac Watts. And they both looked forward to a day where the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forward and be preached among all people. And the message of peace would be published throughout the lands, would be published throughout the world. Y'all, this is the call and the commission of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, His reigning through His death and His resurrection. And we have the mission to go and to tell. Now you may ask, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, first and foremost, pray. Every single one of us in here, we can do that. We can pray. We can pray just like the psalmist prayed. And we can be encouraged even in those prayers because we see just from Psalm 72, God is answering this prayer. And if we pray in light of Psalm 72 for these very realities, I guarantee you, God will answer those prayers. We do this in our pastoral prayers every week. We pray for other peoples and other nations to turn from their sin and experience the reign of Christ in their hearts. Also encourage you, join the missions prayer group that happens on Saturday mornings regularly. They pray for our supported workers, people like Michael and Ali Stilley, people like Andy Johnson, people like Ricky and Brandy Wilhelm. Well, secondly, send. The best way to take part 
and sending missionaries to the nations is by joining a local church and giving faithfully to that local church. Part of that money will go to sending and supporting gospel preaching missionaries who will go and take this gospel to other people. That's one of the ways that you can take part in the Great Commission now. And thirdly, go. Now, not everyone is called to go overseas, but some are, y'all. Some are. And there was always a point where those people who did go overseas, before a time, thought, I'm not going overseas. So if you're a member of this church, one thing that I would encourage you, if you have that interest, come and speak with one of the pastors. We would love to be a help to you, give counsel to you, to speak with you about how to make that decision. Reality number four. Fourth and lastly, the response to the king's reign. In light of the righteous reign of Jesus, in light of a reign that is ever-reaching and eternal, you may ask the question, what am I supposed to do? Well, to help you answer that question, to help us all answer that question, we could probably ask an even better question. What does Jesus deserve from me? What does Jesus deserve from me? I mean, can you imagine how your life, how our lives would look different this week if all of us paused and asked that question in our daily routine? Imagine what the world would look like if every inhabitant of the world asked that question. They started their morning asking, what does Jesus deserve from me? What does Jesus deserve from me right now? What does Jesus deserve from all people? How can I render to Jesus what he deserves? How can I even serve as an example so that other people around me would be more and more glad to give Jesus what he deserves? How can I plead with and seek to persuade other people to give to Jesus what he deserves? And y'all, Jesus deserves your delighted submission. He deserves your full and joyful obedience. He deserves every ounce of enthusiastic worship from you. He deserves your heartfelt delight. Just as we read in our statement of faith earlier, He is perfect in holiness and worthy of all possible honor, trust, love, and obedience. Jesus deserves your joyous submission. But isn't it hard to submit sometimes? It's especially hard to do so with delight. Submission can feel threatening. Serving Jesus 
means making His will supreme and not mine. There's always a risk. And it requires trust. It always requires thinking more of Jesus than I do my own preferences and desires. It means that understanding that Jesus is actually wiser than I am. It means that understanding Jesus wants your good more than you actually want it. Submission is hard because it involves dying. Dying to whatever desire you're denying. Dying to whatever ambition you're pursuing. Dying to whatever vision of the good life that has come into conflict with what Christ tells you in His Word. So how can you submit? How can you serve Him as this prayer of Solomon says that all nations will? How can you live like that now? Faith is the key. Faith is the key. Trust that Christ knows what is good for you better than you do. That He wants what is good for you more than you want it. Study His Word. Strengthen that trust. Take whatever desires you have that are resisting Christ's rule and name them in prayer before Him. Say them out loud. Disown them. Disavow them in prayer. Take your disordered desires and take them to the Lord. Confess them to Him and embrace Christ's rule over you. His burden is easy. His yoke is light. Y'all, if you need rest, He will give rest for your soul. Only Jesus deserves your worship. Only Jesus deserves your absolute obedience. Because Jesus has a reign that is ever righteous. Jesus' reign will be everlasting. Jesus' reign, y'all, is ever-reaching. Let's pray. God, we pray now that you would be with us, that you would go before us now, that we would rejoice in your reign. Lord, that we would not resist it, but Father, that you would help us all, each, seek to be more faithful followers of you. God, help us now as we seek to follow our Lord and Master. We pray in His name. Amen.